Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I will be interviewing a number of amazing people and simply having a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive in. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-E-E, changehappen.co.uk. You'll be able to catch up with all of the shows on iTunes, Spotify, and, of course, all the usual other places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 14 with the title, Why is it so hard for women to get in the boardroom? And I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Gillian Jones-Williams. I first met Gillian many, many moons ago when I was her business's IT support consultant. That's going back a bit. Gillian describes herself as someone who works with organizations to help them move away from focusing on diversity and truly engaging in creating an inclusive climate. I asked Gillian to describe her superpower, and she said her superpower is inspiring people. Welcome to the show, Gillian. How are you? Hello, Joan. I'm very, very good. And thank you so much for inviting me. And um, yes, I, I really do hope I inspire people, particularly women. Um, it's a massive passion for me uh, watching women develop. Um, I've been running my business for 25 years, and I've had the privilege over those 25 years of coaching many, many women in senior positions and to senior positions. Positions, and I've listened to their challenges. I've tried to help them work with their organizational culture. I've listened to their inner inhibitors. And I think I've got to the point where I'm now understanding a bit more about uh, potentially why this is such a struggle for women. And just to put some context before we start talking about it, um, I saw some figures from a report by Deloitte last year, which talked about the fact that globally, there was only just about 16.1% of women on boards. And what was even worse about that, that was only a 1.9% increase since 2017. So if we carry on at the rate we're going, it might be 30 years before there's actually gender parity in the boardroom, which is shocking, isn't it? Completely. And stats I'm almost appalled at where a lot of companies think it's a great target to aim for 25% women or 30% women. I think, well, surely the target should be 50%. Or nothing, really, don't you think? Yeah. And and also, I have to wonder whether there is a little bit of sneakiness going on. I'm sure it's not deliberate in non-exec roles as well at the moment, um, because obviously, if you have a non-exec on the board, are we reporting that as part of the the female makeup of the board? I guess it depends on whether the non-exec is being paid or if it's a voluntary role. Because exactly. there's so many non-exec roles that are, are, are expenses only, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. So do you think it's uh, a man problem or a woman problem? Do you think that men are making it hard or do you think that women are being turned off by those roles because of that they just don't want to get engaged in that kind of work? Yeah, I, th I think it's both. And, and I think both of them need to be tackled. Um, I still think that there does exist a lot of prejudice about the fact that, you know, women cannot take on that role wholeheartedly, immerse themselves in, you know, the responsibility and the workload of a board member, particularly if they have family, um, to look after. Um, so I think that there is some unconscious bias going on there. And I think there's some conscious bias going on there. Mm. But I also think um, it's to do with two things for women. One is how they feel. And, you know, we hear a lot about imposter syndrome and things like that at the moment. Um, but also about how well organizations are prepared to um, set up a progression plan, a career path, and really prepare them. Because the step up from senior manager to board member is a very, very big and different one. And there's a lot of preparation that I think needs to take place. Mm. 
for me, I, I see a lot of women um, in their what, late 20s up to mid 30s quite rightly wanted to take time out for their family. And uh, that is lost time because that's the, the peak part of your, your business growth, your professional development, isn't it? And that's where you establish your credentials. And quite rightly, women are establishing their credentials as a great parent. And why does that have to be a choice made? Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, very outdated, isn't it? When people think it has to be either or. Um, and of course, there's another issue nowadays is that often women are leaving it until they're 40. So maybe they're establishing uh, more of their career. I mean, when I had my children, I was 30 when I had my first child. And I remember the midwife um, sprinkling my notes with prima gravida, which meant elderly first mother. Um, and of course, nowadays, that's sort of almost the norm and then you know mm. going up to 40 and so women are getting a good chunk of experience and work done uh, before that age um, and then maybe going off to um, have their families and 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 coming back very quickly but perhaps one of the issues about that is that people don't perceive that you're ready to be on a board until you're in your 40s. You know, they want um, people to be older and maybe that's that's coinciding with family time. So if they're thinking, no, 30, 35, still a bit young, can't um, have you, you won't be able to stand up to um, some of the larger, more dominant male counterparts. And um, then when you're older and having children, that again makes you worry, well, can you take on a big role when you just had young children as well? So, um, you know, there's lots of, I think, um, views about when is the right time, the right age, and why can't a woman in her early 30s be on a board? Oh, for sure. I, absolutely. I, I, I often see that it's, uh, across genders where there's this perception that you have to be of a certain age. Uh, did anyone tell Mark Zuckerberg he couldn't have found a, a multi-billion dollar company at the age of 18, 16, or whatever he did? And yeah. we look at a lot of these uh, uh, startups in tech. These were formed by young people in their, in their teens and early 20s. No one told them they couldn't be a director at that age. So why why do you have to have time served? You know, I, often maybe maybe you become entrenched in your views. Maybe maybe you, you people have this bias to perceive you must have done thirty forty years with an accountancy or legal background to to be a good board director, but. Yeah. It's not true, really, is it? It's not true. Not true at all. And I think, you know, one of the other things um, that um, they're missing is a bit like as you go up a leadership ladder as well, um, is that, you know, it's not necessarily about your technical expertise that is, you know, what's going to make the difference on the board. It's more about your emotional intelligence, your ability to lead, your ability to galvanize people into action, have charisma, vision. Um, and, you know, women do bring a huge amount to the boardroom in terms of their negotiating skills, um, yeah. in terms of their financial acumen. Maybe that comes from years of budgeting. I don't know. Um, and, you know, their emotional intelligence in terms of, you know, bringing a balance to a board. And, you know, I'm going to talk quite frankly, Joan. I have worked over the last 25 years, as you can imagine, with a huge amount of all-male boards. And um, it's quite a tough environment to be in because they tend to set themselves um, into quite a club there that it's almost very, very difficult for new people to come in and feel comfortable with as well. It's, it's, it's different nowadays, but certainly 25 years ago, um, you can imagine the stats were very, very different too. Hmm. And I think, the, the board, the makeup of the board sets the tone for the organization, doesn't it? So yes. if, if the board is all male, it's setting the tone for the organization. Therefore, when women join in, in the junior ranks, they're already in a, in a world that is male dominated. They're already in a world that is designed by men for men. So the flexibility, the, the, the as you say, the EQ, a lot of that stuff isn't pervasive in the organizations yeah. at the junior level either, is it? So we're designing this. To, why, why don't women succeed? Because they're not committed. Well, they're not committed in a male-dominated world. They're committed in, in the business world. They, they can deliver. They can work, as we know. But they, they don't want to be men. 
They want to be women, and that's what that's what men want men to be men. They yeah. don't want women to be women sometimes, and that is, is that part of the problem. I, I, I do think it is, um, and I think that you know the wider sort of diversity angle here of starting to lose some of their shackles about our um, unconscious bias and our, our view of how a person should be and what a person should look like. I mean, if I asked everybody to close their eyes and you know imagine a board of directors, they probably would struggle to push the women in there and their visualization because of so many years of programming them. And, you know, that's not to um, criticise people for it. That's how it always was, you know, and for a lot of people Mm. being brought up that way. And maybe what needs to happen is for ambitious women who, you know, believe that they could be a board member and want to be a board member before they accept a job, they should really examine the makeup of that board at the time, even if it might be 10 years away from where they're going um, Mm. now, and they might need to do that. They should perhaps ask that and say, could you tell me what your board is made up of um, and how diverse it is? What are your your targets? What are you looking at? Are you looking to change that? How are you going to evolve that? Yeah. Uh, do you think it's good enough as it is? Yeah. Uh, and maybe ask them if they're happy with it. Yes. I, I guess those are all questions, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. It must be, t- it must be tough. Um, being a woman going into a boardroom, maybe newly appointed and you're the only woman. That must be really daunting. Yeah. You, you have to be. You'd have to have a, a certain set of resilience within you to be able to cope with that environment, wouldn't you? So, uh, is that some of the challenge of getting the second woman onto the board? Because the first woman has to be comfortable in that environment, or maybe, maybe it's just it's just not that easy getting the first woman on the board, let alone the second, third, or fourth, or even trying to get the get the mix of fifty fifty. That must be a real challenge. It, it is a real challenge, and I think for the first woman on a board that can be really, really hard for them. And I think this is where imposter syndrome really does tend to kick in. Um, you know, and I have heard stories still of even at board level, them being asked to get the coffee or are they going to take the minutes in this meeting? And, you know, when you are surrounded by powerful uh, male counterparts, finding it quite difficult to stand up and just say, actually, I think that John could take the minutes or, um, you know, Mohammed can take the minutes or something like that. So um, I think you're absolutely right. The the first woman on the board has to be very, very resilient, um, has to really be able to get their voice heard, has to be able to have, you know, that gravitas to be accepted. And of course, you know, I'm lucky. I'm very, very tall. Um, I've always been quite um, a big bird, if you like. Um, and so therefore, I can make my presence felt just by being in a room. But for, you know, there's lucky women who have petite um, figures or are more quietly spoken and things like that, then they've got a double challenge, haven't they now? Mm. Because, yeah, I mean, mean, we talk about bias again. The, the tone of voice, the power in your voice, your stature, all those things add credibility to your authority, don't they? And yeah. if, you, if you say, if you are a, a woman who has a softer voice, more considerate in the way you speak and a slighter frame, you're not seen as a, as an alpha. And that's what people are looking for on boards, aren't they? Yeah. And and particularly then, if you add to that, if they have um, quite an introverted character and, you know, they prefer to listen and make, you know, very, very good, succinct summaries of things, as opposed to us extroverts who will just waffle on about anything all the time, uh, that perception might then be that they're not adding as much value um, to those people who are, you know, talking significantly. Um, so you're absolutely right. That's one of the things that um, I coach women quite a lot on is that projection and voice, uh, how they should look when they're trying to get their point heard, uh, what to do if they get cut off by people, or if other Mm -hmm. people seem to pick up their ideas and go, yes, that's brilliant, even though two minutes ago, they hadn't really taken any notice of their idea. And 
It's all stuff which really they shouldn't have to worry about having earned that place on the board. You know, everybody on a board, male or female, should be accepted for what they bring to the table and who they are, introverted, extroverted, etc. But I do think that women have to work extra hard to be able to um, get that hearing and get noticed or people Mm. just form a perception of them. Yeah, I suppose I come from the view that, rightly or wrongly, that one of the key attributes of a board member is gravitas and presence. Mm-hmm. And there are, there, there are many women who don't necessarily have that gravitas and presence, mm-hmm. but have the capability. Yeah. And we're judging people on that gravitas and presence rather than their insights, as you say, their EQ, their decision-making criteria, their ability to teamwork, their ability to to represent the voice of half the population, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, we don't value those attributes, but we do va- value this 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 bear pit type machoism <laughs> of, of being able to fight fight your voice, and that's that's what we're valuing more than those softer skills, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was a really interesting thing you said about gravitas. Um, I've coached many many women, um, and when we start the sessions, they say um, my boss has said that coaching will be useful for me because I need to be more assertive and I need to have more gravitas. And I talk to them for a while. And I think, actually, you appear to have a good level of gravitas and assertion. So I'm I'm struggling here to see the, the perspective from your boss. And then I say, or is it that your boss has interpreted assertion for aggression? And Mm. therefore, they want you to be more like them. And they think about it. And most times they say, yeah, thinking about it, because they're very shouty, bang the table. And that's not how I get things done. So the perception might be that, you know, gravitas equals, um, you know, verging onto the aggression. And um, I've worked with some boards. Um, I remember one very, very clearly. And I think that um, they get habitualized into their own behavior. And then it's very hard for them to take an outside look in. And I remember once I was running a team day the next day and I had dinner with this board and the HR director, who was a fairly quietly spoken person. And it was so full on and the challenges were coming, even though I just joined, you know, very quickly. What's your background? What do you do? This all over the place. And um, even as quite a strong character, I thought, whoa, this is tough. And I said to the HR person, are they always like this? And she went, what? Well, what do you mean? And I think they were so habitualized to the way they spoke to each other and the level of noise, they couldn't see what it felt like for other people coming in. Kind of this bombastic banter sort of thing. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. So do, do you think? Uh, do you think beauty bias is uh, disproportionately affects women? Do you think that uh, women are more successful the more attractive or the more um, feminine they are, but they're, they're not valued for that femininity? That they're, they're, they're successful people. Men want women to be attractive, but they don't want women to be attractive and bossy. If you like, it's kind of that uh, a double-edged sword, isn't it? it? It really is truly a paradox. I think you know when you when you look at um, diversity, um, and of course, you know the fact that women already stand out by virtue of being a woman, um, and then can get criticised for that look. And mm. you know, really, it's it's hard. For for them either way, because if they try and behave femininely, then, you know, people will accuse them of being too much that way or trying to use their feminine charms to do things. Or if they go the other way and try and wear suits and look very, very masculine, that doesn't work mm. either. And for me, I think it's so important that any woman who is considering being on a board um, there is authentic. I think it's quite possible to be feminine and still have gravitas and, you know, still be there. And they've got to be who they truly are because, you know, it's a hard enough job being a board member without having to try and pretend to be something that's not really you, Mm. isn't it? Mm. But I just think a man, say, who is a little bit rotund with a shirt that doesn't quite button up over the belly, (laughs) 
a collar that's strangling, strangling them, uh, red rosy cheeks with with lots of hair coming out their nose and ears and big bushy eyebrows, is seen as a, a jolly good chap and life, and lots of life experience. Whereas if a woman wasn't kept and, and, and presenting in a very attractive way, that would be very negative. But to a man being a bit unkempt, a bit, a bit kind of not that desirable, if you like, it, mm. it's, it's, it's not a problem. They're not judged on their beauty, are they? They're judged on their, on their, their gravitas only. Yes. Uh, and certainly, you know, if I think back over the years, um, how many slightly scruffy women, um, with a tattoo, certainly with no hair growing out their nose, but have I seen in the boardroom, you know, and I must admit, when I look at the board members that I've coached and worked with, um, they have generally been very, very well presented. And I suspect that's because they felt that they needed to be, um, mm. to do that. And, and actually, I'm thinking of a couple of occasions where I've coach people and their bosses have told them or even me that they needed to think about their dress sense um, and the way that they dressed. And those bosses have been women as well, which has been quite shocking. Who said, you know, they need to change the way they dress or maybe even dress more femininely. So it's not always, you know, the men that um, cause women to change their appearance. Oh, for sure. I think to, to be fair to men, if you look at some of the uh, very visible public male leaders, most of them are, are well. They understand their own personal brand, the value of looking smart, um, and their appearance does matter. So I, I guess men are starting to do that. Maybe not our current prime minister. <laughs> you know, that was but... just going through my mind when you said that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but then if you look at Rishi Sunak, you would say absolutely. Yeah. So, so men do understand about, about the necessity for personal brand being groomed. I think, so I think we're probably, we're probably evening up the challenge now in the boardroom that (laughs) both, both genders need to have this professional brand image, uh, be ready to be on camera at any time sort of thing. So I, I kind of think it's, it's only fair. Um, we, we were talking just before we got online about one of the challenges women in their fifties face, which is the, uh, as we talked, we talked about the, the M word and, uh, and that is right at the time where women are looking to be successful in the boardroom in the senior part of their career. And menopause is, is right in the middle of their life. So, yeah. so how do you help women with that? Well, you know, there, there is so much help that I think women need uh, with the menopause. And the first one is to be able to talk about it. Um, because, you know, it's only really been in the last five years that that word has been allowed to be banded around. You know, before that, it was a real taboo. And I think, you know, for that reason, a lot of younger women even didn't really know what that was all about unless their mothers had told them. Uh, But it affects women massively in the workplace. And, you know, just a few things which could impact, particularly in the boardroom, is the lack of sleep. That might be because of night sweats and things like that. And the the losing the mind, um, the emotional fog that comes from lack of sleep and almost the hormones changing, Um, the lack of self-esteem, which comes throughout that period for many, many women and because for everyone it's different um and you know and then you've got other physical symptoms as well which can make it very very difficult uh, for them to feel comfortable in the workplace and Mm. um you know certainly it's something that i think all managers need to be prepared to talk to their women when they get to that age or they're um, having things. And let's say when we say that age as well, actually, although 51 might be the average age for women, often it can start anytime from age 36 onwards and women mm. can become perimenopausal. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen and that could be one of the reasons why they perhaps don't feel as motivated if they're tired all the time, they're drained, they're beginning to worry that they're forgetting things, you know, they're having these hot flushes, they're embarrassed about it. So that that really could impact upon, I think, um, going into the boardroom. Yeah, and as, as you said, there's still this stigma about uh, being 
in your menopause is is fit a, a loss of fertility, a loss of womanhood, a loss of all these things, and coupled with the uh, the hormonal changes, the psychological changes, and the physical changes, mm-hmm. is a whole sense of loss of well being, loss of self, isn't there? You yes. feel like you've lost your best years. It's, yeah, and and there's the other thing, and this goes for men and women as well in terms of ageism, and you know, at what age should we start saying, well, you know, they're fifty five now, so you know, maybe not recruit them into board, need younger blood or this, that and the other. And, you know, coming from a woman of a certain age here, um, and I think to myself, I'm still the managing director of my own business. I still drive it. I still come up with ideas every day. I'm not planning to retire in the next few years. Um, so why do we have to think about um age when we're looking at that. You know, it could be any age from a younger woman to somebody, you know, still in their 60s who's got a lot of value to add. Mm. I think also now now we're in this kind of COVID coexistence of the world, the requirement to move, travel, meet, fly, commute everywhere is different. And there are roles that people can perform now more adequately. Whatever age they are, so ageism, I think, should be less of a factor. And yeah. We can, but are there enough? But the conversely, we're in a world where there's less jobs, less less roles around. So we've got the younger generation emerging, trying to get into the workplace. We've got older generation who may be being made redundant from what they were doing. Uh, so there's a whole load of generations now looking for work, and, mm. and who does the who does the who does the employer look to? The, the voice of experience and age. Or the youthfulness uh, of growth, um, or blend both. It's, 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 it can be a tough choice. For it is a tough choice, I and mean, I would hope that they would go for the best person for the job. Um, mm. And and actually, that's one of the responses that I gave to somebody recently. I was doing a women's presentation, and one of the questions at the end um, was, um, "How do you deal with a man who says, I bet they will employ you because you're a woman'?" Um, when I go for a promotion. And um, and that was the answer I said, is to just look them squarely in the eyes and say, I'm sure that they will choose the best person for the job. Uh, but I think you're so right in, um, you know, thinking about um, the new world and COVID and what this means to um, everybody, really, but particularly women. Because if you think about it, the, the reasons why women were never promoted, such as ability to travel overseas, well, as you rightly said, well, that doesn't really count anymore, not going there, not accepted in certain cultures. Well, that might have been if you're in the same room, but we're not necessarily in the same room now. Uh, you know, needing to work flexibly, be at home, well, now, working from home can be seen as a productivity enhancer. And, you know, we're really going to start challenging people in the future who say, you can't work from home um, now that we've had to work from home from five months. So a lot of these reasons are being kind of knocked out of the ballpark. And for me, I've been wondering lately, I've been, you know, working on something which I call virtual visibility, um, leveling the playing field, because is this going to be the catalyst that now affords women more opportunities? Or is this going to, you know, remove some of the leg up that they were beginning to get? Because now that Mm. we're all remote, and maybe, you know, we can't go to the pub on a Friday night, which if you had children, you couldn't do before. Well, you can go to the pub on a Friday night now and bring your children virtually, can't you? Um, For sure. And bring your bring your children into the conference call at six in the evening. If yes. you have to have a, because of time zones, you have to have an evening conference call. You could do that yeah. now. It's not a problem. So. You know, everything has changed now. And I think, you know, whatever happens in the next six months to 18 months, um, working from home and flexible working is going to be a massive topic for everybody to think about and how much um, this happens. Um, but with it brings another challenge for women, because if they really, really want to get noticed, to be pushed up the ladder, um, they have got to look at this virtual visibility now because it's so easy to get lost in a screen of 20 people, uh, you know, even more difficult sometimes um, to get a good hearing than if you were physically in the room. So if they work yeah. at it, 
and have a good strategy for it and accept that they need to be more visible and do more networking. As I said, it could be that the playing field is being leveled a bit. Yeah, I hear that. Um, I also hear that lots of studies are now showing that women have also been disproportionately impacted by working from their home environment Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of childcare responsibility, care responsibility, home admin, um, living in multi-generational homes with elderly parents maybe, or even working in homes where they're of a certain faith where culturally women's roles are different. So it's not all it's not all sweetness and light for women at home, is it? No, and I think I think that's the difference between the COVID world and the kind of the returning to the workplace phase. Um, because whilst women were working from home during COVID, they still had a massive responsibility, even if I think their partners were helping out with homeschooling and things like that. I think so much of it fell to them. And if you've got a four-year-old, you know, who's clinging on the door screaming, but I want mummy and I want mummy. Um, it can be really, really hard. And the feeling of guilt for women, I've done a lot of webinars during this period to help people cope with relationships at home and staying motivated while working at home. And guilt was one of the things that they brought up a lot in terms of, you know, trying to look after the children, be there, obviously not being able to go to school and do their work at the same time. So I think this period has been tremendously challenging. However, you know, they must make sure that when the children do go back to school, when they don't have to do this anymore, that they can, you know, really maximize the benefits and get that visibility up again. Yeah, for sure. And I'd like to think that women would have also acquired even more life skills as a result of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> another another string to their bow in terms of multitasking and yeah, coping. Got up another and, level. And, yeah, they have. It's power up, isn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, for sure. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, I mean, are women, the, the women you speak to are more anxious about going back to a physical workplace or do, do, is it, do you not think that's gender specific? Do you think everyone's kind of got a bit of anxiety about going back on the train or back into workplace? Yeah, I think, I think, um, you know, people of both um, genders are anxious about it. Um, but certainly for women, and it's a really difficult one at the moment, um, because if your boss wants you to go back to the workplace, as, as many of them do, but your children aren't at school, there aren't so many school clubs open, it's more difficult to get childcare. We don't know if we're suddenly going to have another mini lockdown or a major lockdown or anything like this. And I think the uncertainty causes a lot of anxiety. And what that does is it means that people just kind of focus on what they have to, i.e. the work, and maybe thinking about their career and what they need to be doing to promote themselves um, is something that that has been put on hold over this period. For a lot Mm. of women, I think they've simply been just getting by and getting through the day because it has been, you know, so busy for them. For women who don't have children, it might have been very different. It might have been much more of a time to think, actually, I can stop and reflect and I can perhaps do some more self-development. So I think there's very, very different experiences, um, but certainly a lot of anxiety. Yeah, I, I, I'm seeing that a lot of times. People I speak to, they're kind of comfy now. It was a big shock to have to yeah. pull up your dining room chair and, and work from home. But now people are kind of used to it and settled in, aren't they? It's, yes. I suppose as, as a human species, we kind of get used to our status quo. Yes. And we've, it's been long enough now where the new, we've got a new status quo. We're, we're now comfortable. And then to go back on the train, back into the office, yeah. it's like, oh, that, that's different again. It's, it's maybe like being out of work for six months. When you go back, it's a real yeah. culture shock to your system again, isn't it, trying to get back into the rhythm? We, we've gone back to the office this week. We went back yesterday, but on the proviso that nobody has to go back. Um, we've gone back because we wanted to, and we're lucky enough to have separate offices and a big space. Um, and so everything is in place for us, so we're very safe there. And we all drive to work. 
Um, but my team certainly wanted to go back and I wanted to go back sometimes. But on other days, like today, when I'm doing calls all day, then there's no point in me driving to the office just to sit and do that. I'm not going to interact with anybody. So I think we have to take a much more common sense approach to it and, you know, allow people to choose. Mm. I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think it will certainly unlock the can do of flexible and non rigid working uh, practices. I, and I think that that's going to be the, the good yes. thing that comes out of this. But I, I still do see a lot of companies almost like with glee focusing on the fact they're going to get back into the office. They're going to bring everyone back into this, mm. this big expensive office they've got or this big asset uh, without necessarily considering the feelings of the individuals and because the offices won't be the same, will it? We, no. we know that you've you've got uh, hand sanitizers on every signs desk, everywhere, and signs yes. everywhere, stickers on the carpet. Yes, you're having to wipe down things. Yeah. So this 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 place that was friendly and warm and safe, <laughs> you go back there. It's it's now this really unfriendly, dehumanizing kind of environment. Yes. I, mean, I, I went to this. I went to the cinema the other week, and. It put me off going back because it's so not the experience I yes. wanted. I went to have my hair done yeah. and it wasn't enjoyable having my hair done. <laughs> it put me off going for my nails. So all these things that I used to do because I enjoyed the experience, I've gone. Yeah. We can't enjoy that experience anymore. And it's so, so different. So true. And I think that, you know, this is going to be something that women really have to think about because it's going to interfere into their thought process. Everything that they always knew in terms of I'm working hard at this role, I'm getting my visibility up, I'm getting on good projects, I'm hoping that, you know, they're seeing me as a progression, uh, as, a, as a successor, and I'm going to progress, that they're hoping that all all of this is going to happen. And then suddenly you have a five-month interruption, which takes a lot of that away. And then, as you said, when they do go back, if they go back or if they partially go back, the experience is so different. It might start challenging them about, is this what I really want? Mm. Um, and does this still work for me? And I think it's, it's always right to be challenged and to think about it because the experience of having to homeschool – and look after children for four or five months and be there could make women feel one way or the other. They might have absolutely loved it mm. and thought, I'm really missing doing this and this is so great. Um, or they could just be thinking, <laughs> I really want to spend more time, you know, back in the office. And I have had some women who said, I cannot wait for my nursery to open. You know, I need it. I really do need yeah. it. And that is the whole point, I think, for women as well is, you know, never being judged. Um, because, you know, some people have views that, you know, you, you can't get it right. If you work, you're not a good mother. If you're, um, and if you don't work, you know, then you're no good technically or, um, you know, intellectually or something like this. And so it's something which I think we battle with through the whole of our life. I've got two children and we battle with it the whole of our lives is, you know, certainly when children are very, very young is never feeling like we're doing a good job. You know, I'm not being a good wife or partner. I'm not being a good worker. I'm not being a good mother because I can't pay attention to these things. And that will have been exacerbated during COVID. So, you know, I think that women do need to take time to regroup, remember that it was a unique experience that they had um, and think about what lessons do they want to learn and what does that mean for them in their career? And there's one other thing I've been thinking about, Joan, as you've talked about why women don't progress so well. And I think it's because, um, you know, you tend to have a bit of a bell curve here where you have maybe 20% of women who um, have always wanted children, are very homegrown. They know that they'll want to stay at home or just get a, a, a simple job, which means that they can spend lots of time with their family and they're, they're not um, being overly um, pushed at work. And then you get about 20% who either never want children or sadly may not be able to have children. But then in the middle, there's the 60% who are transitional. 
and they may or may not want children. And what sometimes happens is they coast, not deliberately, but they might be 25, 26, 27, just got married, and they think, okay, probably I want to have children in two years, so I won't worry too much about the fact that I'm not getting promoted because when the child goes to school, I will. And um, the problem is, is that they don't make their career plans. And managers are really, really bad about sitting down and having conversations with women, which allow them to talk about where children feature, because we've made it so PC in the offices now, they're afraid to say, you know, do children feature in your plans and how can we still develop you around it? Yeah, I agree, because... The reaction could be, how dare you ask me about children? It's none of yes. your business. Rather than seeing it as a positive um, way of showing an interest and a genuine manager or leader helping you develop your career. And it, you're right. It, there is a lot of fear by men of asking the wrong questions yeah. or inappropriate, seem to be inappropriate. There's a lot of fear there. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, understandably so. I mean, the the PC police, you know, have got them on high alert all the time. Mm. Um, But so I think it needs to come from two ways. I think it needs to be that women are encouraged and there are very few women who go to their bosses with a fully formed career plan. A lot of men do, but not many women. So women need to be encouraged to write that maybe five, 10 year plan and think about what do I need to go and ask my manager for now? And to feel comfortable in saying to them, of course, at some point in the next, you know, five years, I might want to have children because, you know, none, none of us know if, when, etc. cetera. Um, however, I do want to progress to senior management and therefore I want the development. Um, and, um, you know, to be able to have that conversation because if a woman brings it up, then it feels better for the manager to speak about it. Um, and then, you know, they couldn't be accused of discriminating. If a woman says, look, I think I want to go and have a baby in the next couple of years, but then I will want to come back and I will want to progress. Then the manager can mm. talk to them and say, what they can't do, obviously, is to start planning and discriminating or excluding them um, because they know that that's what's on their mind. And I mm. think basically any manager who has a woman working for him, you know, who is between the ages of 20 and 50 has to expect that they may at some point um, want to have a baby or have a baby. Mm. I, maybe I've not near the 50. Where, yeah. yeah maybe <laughs> I've worked in places where when a a woman in her late twenties got engaged, suddenly all the men in the office started a sweepstake on when they would have a baby and leave. Right. It's almost like this is real kind of expectation that engagement is a signal for you've got we've got three years now and then she'll be gone sort of kind of yeah. attitude. And that that, that could be career limiting as well, can't it? People prejudging and, and, somebody. And sexually discriminating. Yes. Yeah, and sexually, sexually <laughs> So if you're listening to yes, this completely. and you're doing a sweet yes. state, you know, that needs to go in the bin. Um there. it does. Yeah, um, obviously. Yeah, you're absolutely right. All sorts of things like that happen. And I think, you know, for women it's a very, very frustrating thing anyway, you know, that people start asking them all the time, isn't it? Because, you know, you don't know whether they've got a condition which means that they can't have children, whether they just really don't want to but feel embarrassed because they feel they should say, oh, yes, I want one. Um, it's a very delicate situation for, you know, people to say, you know, when are you going to have children? So, you know, it's, uh, it's something to be avoided at all costs, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got a good friend who got engaged purely because she was sick and tired of people asking her when she was going to get married. <sighs> so her, she'd been with her partner for, I don't know, 20 odd years. And there was just this expectation, oh, when's the wedding? When are you getting married? So she, she thought like they had this engagement of convenience, basically. So she could sort of say, look, we're engaged right now. Shut up. Sort of thing. It was almost like this way of stopping people asking you what she was doing, whether she was single, whether she was settling down. Yes. And it can be really frustrating, can't it? I, I, I guess women have their own clock and they have their own family needs. And, and so maybe it's often easier for women to sort of say to other women, 
well, I'm 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 maternal. Why aren't you maternal? It's almost mm. like sharing that sort of kind of that 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 common that common thought process, and mm. and that, as you say, can be quite um, quite ill ill judged where someone doesn't want to have a family, or or worse, or they can't have a family for various mm. reasons, and uh, or, it, yeah. you know may have just had a miscarriage and not told anybody about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so yes, I think it's a subject that needs to be approached with care. But I, th- I think again, a bit like the menopause, it's another subject which we should be able to just be much more open with at work in terms of discussing it. And it shouldn't be, mm. um, you know, something which is a concern. And if you think about it in terms of discrimination, like this story that you've just told, you know, nobody would go up to a man in the workplace and say, oh, so you've got a girlfriend, when are you going to get engaged? Um, uh, and, uh, you know, likewise, um, if a man had just got married, they wouldn't go and say to him, so when are you going to have a baby? You know, so uh, it's um, it's something which, you know, if we want equality and things like that, um, and, you know, I do a lot of work on inclusivity and conscious inclusion, things like that. And what I don't ever want is for workplaces to become so sterile that people can't say anything at all. Um, But, you know, judging and taking clues from other people um, about things is really, really important. But it is about this same um, approach to men and women. Um, So the career plan thing should be equal um, very much, I Mm. think. Yeah, I I just, I just made some notes here as we're talking. And one of the phrases that keeps popping in, in the DNI space is bringing your whole self to work. You know, we always talk yeah. about this, bringing your whole self to work and being one true self, being authentic and all this. And often that's angled at sexual orientation or gender identity, yeah. about being expressed your sexuality. But actually it's a whole lot deeper than that. When we talked, mm. we're talking just now, we think about mental health. We think about, uh, the whole child, Process, you know, menopause, um, conception, IVF, miscarriage, the whole reproductive cycle of the human race is one of those things that can impact not just a woman's mental health, but often a woman's mental health at various stages in her career. And she doesn't feel able to bring her whole self to work and talk about this. That's one of the challenges, isn't it? It's still stigmatized. That's such women a good talk point. about women's needs. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good point. You know, um, if somebody has got polycystic ovaries or something like that, mm. it's not something that they're going to bring up over lunch um, in a mixed no. group or something like that. But, you know, that could potentially be on their mind all the time or thinking about things. And I think, you know, from, from my experience of talking to women, if they feel that the time is right for a baby, and they're trying for a baby and it's not happening for them, that becomes all-consuming as well. So, mm. yes, and it's very different. It's not something that they want to to go and talk about in mixed groups. It might be they might confide in someone. So I think you're right, Joan, as, as, as we're starting to delve deeper and deeper into, you know, why don't women get in the boardroom? <laughs> you know, mm. there's, there's a lot of things that perhaps – you know, men would never be thinking about that would get in the way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's completely, and it's, it's still held a stigma and shame. And, yes. and men are uncomfortable talking about women's issues. Um, and that, sub, that, that ends up pushing and submerging those, those in, into impact of people's mental health, where people don't, can't talk about it. And if it's a sign of weakness, if you, if you had, a situation in your life, that's in the sign of weakness. And it's despite the fact that most men will have wives, daughters, sisters, all having their own challenges, that, that they should be fairly understanding. But often mm. they're not, are they? It's kind of it's Victorian men talk about men things and don't want to talk about women's things. Yes. And it's it, yeah, it almost the, the old way of men weren't allowed to go to the birth because it's far too yes. it, it's not <laughs> men far too involved, disturbing it? so, for them. And, yeah, and yeah. you know, let's face it, I don't think I've ever, ever heard a conversation from a man who's come into work and talked to a colleague about his low sperm count. Um, maybe they do, you know, golf or something like that. Uh, but it's not something necessarily that would be a matter of conversation, would it? No, even having a vasectomy isn't isn't a dinner table conversation <laughs> so for men. It's, like, it's, yeah. it's kind of like that. Yeah. Oh, 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 you have as well. Oh, oh, I didn't realise you've had. Oh, no, I have. It's kind of on this. 
it's, it's one of those sort of hidden secrets that people don't tend to talk about. <laughs> but yeah, I guess it's just not, men just don't talk about those kind of personal issues in the same way, which is supposed to be known. Male suicide is high as well. Yes. So men can't talk about their own, their own feelings. Um, but yeah, both genders have their own needs and their own mental health uh, concerns, which they, we should we should be encouraging people to talk about and bring absolutely. that stuff to work. Yeah, absolutely, from everybody. So we're talking about getting women to the boardroom. Um, oh yes, we were. I, 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 know some people who, yeah, <laughs> I thought I was on a medical yeah. show there for a minute. <laughs> no, no, but this is all part. Of, this is all part of the challenges. Yes. That you know, we talk about these obstacles. We talk about male privilege. It's not that men put these obstacles in women's way. It's the fact that these obstacles are in women's way. And how can men help women? Yes. And amplify women and boost women so that these obstacles don't become limiting. And that this is the challenge we face, isn't it? So I, I see some organisations who are focused on mentoring schemes and acceleration programs. And then I hear pushback from men saying, well, that's not fair. Why are women getting all this amplification and I'm not? Don't I deserve it? So what, what, what do you say to that? Well, uh, we get this all the time because we have a women's development program called RISE. Um, now, I'd like to make that very clear. It's not a women's leadership program, although we might talk about a leadership style on one of the modules, because um, I don't believe that women should be put on women's leadership programs. I think it should go on leadership programs with men. Um, but because of everything that we've talked about, today, this is why women need to have a program on their own. And certainly in other organizations where we've had that pushback from men, it's a great, let's do a men's program. So let's look at what content they need and we'll have a men's program. And we did, we separated them and did it. And that's absolutely fine. If they want it for the right reasons, if it's not malicious obedience, you know, well, you've got one, so I want one. But if there's a genuine need there, yeah. Um, go for it. Uh, but, you know, don't just knock the fact that women have got one. Um, think about why do you want one? Because, you know, everything that we've talked about, I think, demonstrates that the amount of tears and emotions that we've had on programs where we've talked about how domestic abuse has affected their ability to assert themselves, how they're being bullied in the workplace. Not suggesting that men don't get that, but it might affect a woman differently about childcare, about, you know, um, hormones and other things which are affecting their work um, and all sorts of things like that. So that's what I say to that, Joanna. I'm very, very strong about it. Yes, uh, completely agree. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. The other thing I was interested to get your opinion on is I, I work a lot with talent acquisition and recruiting teams and a lot of vendors who are promoting these um, unbiased recruitment processes. Right. And I say that, that's fantastic, aspirational, love the idea of giving everybody a fair chance. But how do we level the playing field? Mm -hmm. if, if we already had a level playing field, then de-biasing the future is fantastic. But when we're sitting at 70% men, 30% women, whatever the stats are, if we if we hire in an unbiased way, that will never change because we're we're hiring at a fair proportion. We've got yeah. we've actually got to put some positive action in there. Yes. So how does your how does your unbiased recruitment process allow for positive action? How do you how do you get more women into your funnel to guarantee you're going to get more women out of the funnel and then retain those women so that they can progress? Yeah. And they go they look at they look at me like I'm crazy and say, well, isn't the objective to get the thing fair? I said, well, yes, it is, but we've actually got it. We've actually got a thousand years worth of correction we've got to do first. So how do we now target uh, underrepresented communities uh, in terms yeah. of ethnicity, in terms of gender, in terms of faith? And that's that? the challenge, I would say. You're yeah. so right. And I've got a really good example of that. Um, last year, um, a HR director was telling me they just appointed their new CEO and he was delighted to tell me it was a female, but they needed to have 80% more female applicants to end up with an equal shortlist of men and women. So, you know, that's often what, what needs yeah. to happen. Um, so. And a debiased recruitment process doesn't help you in that. It's, it's a nirvana. You know, it's, it doesn't change the world. And I, I keep challenging people and they look at me like I'm going crazy saying, yeah. well, isn't this ideal? I said, yeah, well, it is a great ideal, but yeah. uh, how do we fix the problem first? 
It's, we, it's that positive action um, right up mm. until I think the shortlist stage where then, you know, if you've given all those opportunities, it has to be the right person for the job. Mm. Um, and that's the important oh, thing. Don't get, me, don't get me started on meritocracy. <laughs> um, I mean, who designs the meritocracy? It's it's often the incumbent, or it's often the the, the social construct of the of the environment you're in. And when when are we going to start designing meritocracy around other skills? Oh, like Joe, EQ, we're going to need another like hour. Oh, yeah, I, know, <laughs> I know, I know. So I, when people say we always hire the best person for the job, and I always say in whose opinion? And it's like, what do you mean? In my opinion? Well, who says your opinion counts? So we we we, we, we judge women, or we judge people of a minority characteristic against a majority rule set. And yes, meritocracy, but let's examine the meritocracy and, and make sure that we've got our process and our JD and our expectations of the role right before we judge people against, oh, Fred left, we need another Fred. Yes. Or we've got a Fred-shaped hole. And that's often what we do. Uh, we, we don't hire for capability. We don't hire for flexibility. We don't hire for adaptability. We, had, we hire for time served through evidence of what you did in the past. And as every share dealer knows, past performance doesn't guarantee future investment returns. Absolutely. So just because somebody's performed well in another company, it doesn't mean they're going to perform well. So I could have a whole rant about meritocracy, <laughs> as I just have. But, and, I, and, I, and I think it's meritocracy and device in the recruitment process is stacked against change. Yes. It, it's, going to prog- it's going to propagate the status quo. And, I, and I, I would challenge any organization listening to this is to answer that question. How are you doing this? And I, I, I saw a talk by someone from Schneider Electric, and the way they're targeting their campaign, their, their hiring process, to be really proactive in terms of hiring women, and they're, they're doing some amazing stuff. And I, and I think if, you, if you're an organisation out there looking to change the way you work in terms of hiring women, look, look at Schneider Electric. They've done some fantastic stuff. Yeah. But anyway, we're we're coming to the end of our hour together, and uh, I know. We haven't talked about your your lockdown project, which is this, this book you've written. Tell me about that. Oh well, um, when I knew I was going to have to lock down, um, and I needed to find a way to become sane. I have to be honest, because we're a face to face training company, we literally lost all of our business, uh, as many did, um, overnight, and it was a terrifying time after twenty five years. Um, so I started to write a book on COVID. And it was a diary, and it was a daily diary of of what it felt like for me to be locked down and my family and how to save a business. Um, and you'll have to read the book to find out whether it was successful or not, uh, or just see whether it was still around. Um, and, um, and every night I wrote um, during the Prime Minister's briefings and the number 10 briefings and during the day, every time news pinged up. So I have an absolute record of everything that happened on a daily basis. Uh, it's more from my point of view. So some of it is humorous. Um, somebody read it recently and said, I have cried and laughed out loud at it. So I may have called Boris Johnson a few names in the book um, as I went through, but nowhere near as bad as the names I called Trump. Um, and um, the reason I wrote it was that I want to publish it to raise money for the um, members of the NHS staff, their families who lost um, NHS members who were trying to save our lives, really, and to keep the memory of them alive. I'm, I'm feeling very concerned now that we seem to have forgotten um, how much they did for us and will they really be remembered. And I hope that if I can get the book out there, it will help people to, to read it and really mm. remember that, you know, talk about levelling the playing field and, and that's what the book will be called. Um, that was it. You know, suddenly nothing we had anymore mattered. How much money we had didn't matter. How important we were didn't matter. The only people that mattered were the NHS staff because nothing else was going mm. to save us. So that's why I wrote it. Yeah, amazing. It's, if you listen to what you're saying there, it's how quickly we forget. And you think about Remembrance Day each year, mm. lest we forget uh, the fallen Yet we've stopped clapping for NHS. Mm. Uh, we've given Sir Tom a knighthood. All these things are now becoming faint memories mm. as we move into through Black Lives Matter, through Pride, through all the other mm. things we're doing. Now we're talking about different elements of COVID and, and almost the NHS staff have, have faded in our memories yes. to a large extent. And yeah, I, I think it's very admirable that we, 
in fact, I can't wait to read the book yourself, myself, and uh, and see if your 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 laughs and giggles are the same as mine over, the, over that period. <laughs> I think we yeah. all saw those briefings with irony and uh, oh yes, trying to read between the lines of what they're really trying to say um, beneath beneath their fluff and bluster. Um, yes. but yeah, very interesting. Uh, well, many thanks, Julian. Uh, I'm sure. Our listeners, the one person probably still listening to us. Hopefully, you've made it to the end. Um, and how can they, how can our, our our special listener here get in touch with you? Um, you your website is emergeuk.com. Yes, www.emergeuk.com, um, and or link in with me, Gillian Jones Williams, on LinkedIn, um, and um, you know, be delighted to talk to you about all things women. Um, one other thing to mention is that every year on International Women's Day, I go to organizations um, free of charge and I do presentations for them to raise money for um, a domestic abuse charity that I work for, Aurora New Dawn. Um, so if anybody's listening and would like to have something like that next year, um, again, that's that's something which we like to do as well. So. Um, it's been really, really great talking to you, Joanna. Thank you for um, being such fun. It could have gone on forever, couldn't it? We could have gone on forever, yeah. And uh, in fact, what listeners don't know is we were talking for about three quarters now before we started recording. So yeah, we, we have, uh, uh, we could probably carry on for another couple of hours, but uh, a huge thank you, a huge thank you. And uh, and to I say to our to our listener who's still there, hopefully he's still there, not turned off yet. Thank you for tuning and listening. Uh, please do subscribe. Uh, keep up to date with future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Uh, please tell your friend. I'm, I'm sure our one listener has more than one friend and your colleagues. Uh, it, I have a number of exciting guests lined up, but I'm sure you'll all be inspired by them over the next few weeks and months. So and also remember, if you'd like to be a guest, uh, please let me know. I'm always looking for more people to contribute. I'd also love your feedback and suggestions to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. Uh, tell me about what you'd like to see on future shows, how it can improve. So finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been a pleasure to host this podcast to you today. Catch you next time. Bye.